Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit and to the glory of your Son, write your word in our hearts and in our minds and score it deeply into our wills. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I read recently that the first century Jews had a blessing that they used to say to each other. May you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. Doesn't have much of a blessing when you think about it, you know. Uh, May you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. Takes a little while to get, but when you sort of think about it for a bit, what they're saying is this. May you follow your spiritual teacher so closely. May you be near him so frequently that the dust his feet kick up is what takes your clothing and lines your face. Now, it's an image of intensity of connection, isn't it? Uh, in a sense, it doesn't matter particularly what you were doing. What matters was who you were doing it with. That whatever was happening, you were with your rabbi. Every opportunity of life was an opportunity to learn from the rabbi how to live like a woman or man of God. The Apostle Paul says the same kind of thing but in a slightly different way Chapter 3, verse 17 of his lovely little letter to the Colossians. I hope you have it with you, your weapon of mass construction. The Bible. Get it out, draw it from its sheet, and open it to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. I'm just calling while you. Come on, I'm trying to say something to me. Still there? Is that better? Is it still done? Is it still ringing? And the bat is running out? Right! Well, I don't know. I hate these things anyway. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The vision of the Apostle here is unlimited. It's whatever you do, and in case you didn't get that, it's in word or in deed, those two great modes of interaction with the world, and in case you didn't do that, he says, for the third time, do everything. There is no element of life, no activity of life, no event in life which is outside the ambit of Paul's vision here. From how you wake up in the morning tomorrow, how you greet the people in your household, the way you conduct yourself, as you make your way to uni, the way you handle yourself in conversations and in lectures, what you do with your body, your money, your time, your abilities, your heart, your thoughts, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you may know that in the Bible that a person's name has to do with the substance of their being and the shape of their character. In the beginning of God's dealings with his people, uh, Moses had asked to know God's name so that he could tell the people who it was that had sent him. And the name of God that he tells Moses goes to the very being of God. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you, sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, 
the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my title for all generations. Doing things in Jesus' name, being covered by the dust of Jesus, is doing things according to the substance of his being and according to the shape of his character. It means that every moment of your day, you see, every moment of your day, from the most mundane and ordinary to the most dramatic and decisive, every moment is dignified with a spiritual significance and value. You do it in the name of Jesus. You drive your car in the name of Jesus. Frighteningly. You relate to your parents in the name of Jesus. You turn on or perhaps turn off your television in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, you do everything in the name of Jesus. Now this instruction from the Apostle comes sandwiched between two sections in his letter to the Colossians. He's just finished a general section on what it means to live under the Lordship of Christ, what it's going to look like today and tomorrow and next week and next year to continue in Christ. Just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, to continue in Him, rooted down strongly into Him, built up wonderfully into Him, firm and established in Him, what is it going to be to look, uh, live in Jesus? It looks like this, generally. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Next week we look at the more specific section that has to do with household life. Very nitty gritty about living in relationship with spouse, uh, parents, slaves, household life in the name of Jesus. But today we're looking at the first section and uh, we're going to proceed in a slightly wonky order. We're going to look at first what we'll need to discard in our lives if we're going to live in Jesus' name and then we'll look at what we need to cultivate in our lives if we're going to live in Jesus' name and then finally at the start of the passage we'll go right back to chapter 3 verse 1 and look at why. Why do it? Living in Jesus' name is both the most exquisite way to live of that there's no doubt when you see it portrayed for us here but it's not the most easy way to live and so you need to be well and truly rightly motivated well first then ways of life that are incompatible with Jesus' name Uh, listen to the kind of shock that this is just suddenly we're in a different sort of mode aren't we from what we were looking at last week in chapter 2 put to death therefore Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 put to death therefore Whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. The first thing that the Apostle speaks of when he speaks about what we need to put to death, what we need to put away from ourselves what we need to deal with to live in Jesus' name is sex. In this, of course, he fits well with our culture. Whether it's a matter of advertising dishwashing powder or a soap opera about doctors, whatever it is, pretty much our culture will turn immediately to sex, so it's good that the Apostle's not out of date here. Now, according to studies undertaken in Australia and the United States, it is 2% of people who first experience sexual intercourse with their spouse after marriage. 2%. 
by the time young people leave their teenage years, uh, around 90% of them have had sex, the vast majority of whom, of course, were not married at the time. Up to one in three husbands and a slightly smaller proportion of wives commit adultery, the survey revealed. More than half the population has a string of multiple sexual partners, a quarter more than five. And the conclusion that's reached is that illicit sex, that is sexual intimacy outside the context of a man-woman marriage, is on any terms, on any terms just endemic in our culture. Uh, At university, it's not just common. Frankly, it's the goal. One of the deepest commitments in the culture of this university is to be immoral. That's how it works, doesn't it? It constitutes this area, it constitutes the use of our bodies, whether in Jesus' name or some other way, it constitutes one of the greatest points of tension between life that's earthly and life for those who are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our Creator. Then you might say, well, that's out there. That's out there amongst them. And it certainly should be out there amongst them, or at least it certainly should not be in here amongst us, but I doubt that it's as clean or clear-cut as that. I know of and have heard about Enough cases of sexual immorality, be that premarital sex or adultery from within marriage or homosexual sex, to believe that this is not just an issue out there, but it's one that affects Christians deeply. What's more, who's to say it's not in here right amongst us today? Who among us has not felt the pull, the tug, of illicit sexual desire? For those of us who are married, who has not had the thought of what seems like the exciting possibility at least that's what it always looks like in the movies, isn't it? The exciting possibility, the daring escape from what's come to be perceived as the dreary sameness of faithfulness. Who amongst us as a single person has not thought of a hundred reasons why it would not be okay for me? Why our situation's different. We really love each other. We're going out after all. We're so committed to each other to hang around until neither of us wants to hang around anymore such as the depth of a commitment of going out. It is in here, it's in our hearts at least, possible for us from the spiritual giants amongst us to those who have been Christians for a matter of days. And the Apostle Paul's, Paul's point is clear and strong. He says, In no uncertain terms, put illicit sex, that is sex outside the context of marriage, put it to death. Kill it. Don't poke and prod it a little bit in the hope that it won't bother you anymore. Don't even do it some serious damage. No. Kill it. Absolutely and utterly put it to death. In the sister letter, Ephesians, Paul says, don't let these sorts of things even be mentioned among you. So far away from the experience of the Christian community, they're not even said. Notice the Apostle is very insightful in his understanding. He knows that actions are the consequence of heart. And so there's a cascading regress of sexual sin. First, the activity that's prohibited. Uh, Fornication, there you see, which translates the Greek word porneia, the default word used in the New Testament for all sexual activity uh, outside the context of marriage, although particularly with reference to adultery and intercourse with prostitutes. 
The next term in the list uh, fills out the picture a little bit, impurity, which I take would include uh, premarital sex, homosexual sex, uh, or sex within what's called prohibited bounds, uh, such as with immediate family members. The third and fourth items, passion and evil desire, are to do with the beginnings of sexual sin. That is, the lust which inhabits the mind before the deeds exercise the body. And finally, the Apostle speaks of greed. Now, it's possible that he just changes topic suddenly. Sex, 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 money. It's possible, but I suspect in the context refers to a kind of utterly unconstrained sexual lust, a greed and insatiable desire uh, for sexual fulfilment at any cost. Now, if that's right, notice that the ultimate diagnosis of sexual sin is idolatry. Idolatry. What is it about this thing that is idolatrous? Idolatry is all about the love of your heart, the orientation of your soul, and, and idolatry is centred on those forces which have the strength and capacity to captivate you, to entrance you. Those forces which promise so much, they promise life and yet in the end only destroy you. Power is a bit like that. Where at the whim of your discretion you can make or break people. Power can be captivating. As you well know if you've ever had the opportunity to have any. But sex is to be included in this list of possible idols as well. There's something about sex which reaches out for the transcendent. Uh, that offers you the possibility of reaching beyond yourself, of connecting with another person at the deepest level for their good or more darkly potentially for your own sense of self and power. And when such a force is not properly harnessed in the context of and commitment of marriage, where you don't just hang out with each other till one of you doesn't feel like it anymore, but you hang out with each other till you're parted by death, when such a force is in that context it's safe and can be positive. But when such a force is not in that context then it can take over the soul and become an idolatry. And the Apostle Paul says whatever that is in you that is earthly fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed the entire package, cluster of this misuse of our sexual nature put it to death this misuse he concludes with a very stark warning verse 6 on account of these the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient on account of these the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient this is a straightforward and unqualified statement because it is a straightforward and unqualified truth. It sounds harsh. How can that be? But of course it makes sense. If in fact this is a form of idolatry, what else could happen? Notice the Apostle says that the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. It's a different thing to be disobedient on the one hand as compared to being repentantly disobedient 
on the other. What the Apostle says here is he says in so many places as our Lord himself said frequently to live your life that is not in the name of Jesus but to live your life in this case in the name of sex that's what it is that is the way of wrath. But to live your life in the name of Jesus and to fail uh, even to fail terribly but to keep facing Jesus and so to turn away from that failure and that sin and to keep facing Jesus and move towards him, that way is the way of life. The wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. The mercy of God comes on those who repent. Now, of course, there's more debt-dealing aspects of the past that we need to put off, and so Paul goes on to speak uh, now of failures of the heart which lead not to sins of the body, but to sins of the lips. Verse 8. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices, and have clothed yourselves with a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, the, the image here is uh, sort of morphs to clothing. Uh, I don't know what sort of thought processes you go through each morning as you select your clothes. Uh, not much by the look of it really it's just pretty much <laughs> whatever's uh, first to hand much like myself much like myself uh, I include myself in the list of moderately well dressed people here and you just put your clothes on don't you well the apostle's actually very concerned that you should have quite specific clothes I think this is because the whole metaphor that he's working with here of dying and rising probably has to do with baptism remember we looked at that last week baptism is about dying in the water and rising to new life when you got up, you would, you would put on new clothes, you see. Clothes which are the way we interface with the world, aren't they? Uh, our sort of the physical interface that we have with the world. And Paul says, you've taken off. You've unclothed yourselves with the old clothes and you've got new clothes, a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Well, here are some more clothes, some, some of those old dirty rags. You know, the sort of tawdry stuff that we need to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from our mouths. Now, before I tell you a story about anger, uh, I just want to let you know that I do love my kids dearly. <laughs> and, and all the things they say about how children bring great personal joy and great personal growth into your life, well, they're all true. Anyway, uh, I had a kid, or at least my wife had a kid, and it was terrible. Uh, our child did not sleep for nine months. Uh, he ate or he cried. And um, uh, then we, for reasons that escaped me, frankly, had a second kid, uh, and, and, and she was worse. Uh, she didn't sleep for 12 months. Now, I, I figured this was okay, right? Because God has got a certain number of rotten kids that he's just got to hand out. And he gives them to the really strong people. <laughs> I had friends who had kids that ate and slept. That's all they did. 
And that told me all I needed to know about them. They were weak people. <laughs> but God had some rotten kids and so to my wife and I, he gave them. But I, pretty was, I was pretty sure that by the time I got through my second kid, right, we would, we, we'd reach the end. We were due one of those sleepers. Uh, I, I prayed with God, Katrina, uh, you know, had become pregnant and, and, and I'm doing bargains with God. God, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I would go even to Tamworth for you. <laughs> I mean, the very pits. <laughs> Our third child was the worst. <laughs> it was like a journey into the twilight zone. I remember at one point I had a friend who'd also just had his third kid. Uh, we were doing the equip, uh, staff equip training program on the Monday morning and we were walking back up through the graffiti tunnel and we were both walking beside each other like this. <laughs> we weren't meaning to, that's just the way we walked at that time. I looked over to him and I said, third kid? He said, yep. <laughs> and, and we had a meeting of souls like that. We, there no more, we had no need for words. We just had a straightforward soul connection. Now, uh, I found in myself at the uh, arrival of our third child and as this thing kind of descended upon me, this cloud, I found in myself a rage that I didn't know existed. I'd never seen it before. It was terrifying. Uh, she would be screaming, Sabrina's her name, and so I thought the most sensible thing at this time to do would be to shout at her. And she's two months old, that should work. <laughs> Uh, our oldest at the time, Miles, would not like this, so he would shout at me, he was five, and he would tell me, shouting at her doesn't help, Dad. <laughs> Which was both true and counterproductive. <laughs> because I would then shout at him. <laughs> and this whole thing, for some months, was this sort of parody of family life. A terrible parody. Uh, I had a kind of a mentor at the time, I was involved in a leadership program, uh, and it got to the point where I needed to confess to him my rage, this anger that just had found a home in my heart. And uh, not, not just as a problem, not just, you know, I've got a psychological problem, which, I mean, that was true, but, but as, a, as a, an earthly thing, as a, as a clothing that I was wearing that I needed and had to put off. For it was inappropriate for someone who was living in the name of Jesus. Now I'll tell you the story for a couple of reasons. One, anger is a complex and challenging issue, isn't it? It's complex because it kind of comes from places and in contexts that we just don't expect it to come from. And it's challenging because if it's not handled well, it can be very destructive. And you may know something of the price tag of improperly handling anger, of fractured relationships, of uh, broken friendships. The author of the Proverbs, the teacher, says, One given to anger stirs up strife, and the hothead causes much transgression. That's true, isn't it? But secondly, the, re- the other reason I tell you is because, um, you know, I'm a nice guy. So some people think, at least from the outside. And anger became a real issue for me, and it would be terribly mistaken to just take the outside view. And the point is, you see, you're all nice people too. I look at you and you smile and look like you're listening and that kind of stuff. Happy, smiley faces. Lovely people. 
But I know enough to know that doesn't mean anger is not an issue for you. Just like it was an issue for me. Many of us carry terrible hurts from our past. Anger lodged in our hearts which finds all sorts of remarkable expression. Uh, there's a lot of anger around, isn't there? We're a very immoral culture and we're also a very angry culture. Um, that poor politician, I can't remember his name, who was goaded sufficiently about the Pacific Highway that he should seek to strangle his opponent. He's now lost his job, uh, you know, for a part of his job. Uh, he had an anger management issue. Now, my understanding is the minister who goaded him achieved precisely what he wanted. Uh, but there is an anger epidemic. Uh, we have road rage, we have airplane rage, we have shopping centre rage, we have sporting rage. Rage is all the rage. And so we have such parasites as Jerry Springer making money out of rage, glorified and televised. The Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology defines anger in this way. It says it's an intense emotional reaction, sometimes directly expressed in overt behaviour, sometimes remaining a largely unexpressed feeling. Being angry is an emotional readiness to aggress. I love that word, aggress. It's a verb form of that other word we're a little more familiar with, aggressive. An, e an emotional readiness to aggress. That's aggress. Uh, headed from the starting blocks towards another person, emotionally, like an exocet missile. Petrarch, the great Renaissance figure, was a little more poetic. He wrote that <coughs> anger is a brief madness and unchecked becomes protracted madness bringing shame and even death. I think, again, that's quite insightful. Anger is a, is a brief madness, actually. A kind of block of normal, rational process. I mean, I love my daughter to bits. I'd die for them all. And there I was. She was screaming because she's a baby. That's their job. She was doing it very well. <laughs> and I'm yelling at her in a moment of madness. A uh, guy was here on the Tuesday public meeting said, uh, he gave his permission to tell the story, he said, uh, he'd said on the weekend that in a moment of madness I want to see no one else for the rest of my life <laughs> except the person he was with. I'd say he's positive about her. But he was so mad at the world he could imagine if his wish came true. I want to see no one else for the rest. That's you. You. If you want to see you. <laughs> or me. It is a brief madness which unchecked becomes a protracted madness. And the Apostle says, take it off. Have, have, have nothing to do with this kind of madness. Now there is a righteous anger, of course. God is angry uh, in the Bible. Some 300 times God is spoken of as angry. He's angry at wrongdoing, mistreatment, injustice. And so at another point the Apostle says, be angry but do not sin in your anger. Know how to be appropriately angry. Here, of course, the issue is not appropriate anger, but inappropriate anger. Rage. Wrath. 
malice. That wrath is that anger that wants revenge, that desires retaliation and wants to return the hurt or injustice that an offender has caused to them with interest. It's the don't get mad, get even kind of anger. I will find a way to pay you back. Malice is an anger that a person suppresses over a long period of time and allows to quietly smolder inside them. It doesn't blow up, it doesn't even up, it kind of clams up and just wants to curse. To curse, of course, the opposite to bless. It destroys relationships and damages the human personality. Uh, anger, of course, if it doesn't take physical forms like revenge and violence, can take verbal forms. And on the whole, we, I suspect, are better at verbalising our anger than beating people up. The Apostle is quite clear, though. Neither of those two things belong to the person who lives their life in Jesus' name. Slander, for example, is a verbal form of anger, if you like, a destruction of people's character, if not their bodies. Abusive talk, which is attacking people verbally. And I suppose most commonly of all, lying. Lying also, which is an epidemic in our society. So much so that there are entire professions from which we just no longer even expect the truth at all. Second-hand car salespeople and real estate agents have as their professional tasks to misstate the truth, or so it seems. The Apostle says sexual immorality, the way we use our bodies and the orientation of the heart from which that comes, anger and rage, and destructive and vicious words, the way we use our lips, these things don't have no place in the life lived in Jesus' name. These are not life lived in the image of our Creator. They are a parody of life. They deal death, death to ourselves, and death to our communities. And where the Apostle says no, no to these things, of course he always says yes to other things. No to death, yes to life. No to vice, yes to virtue. Not just leaving you no and in a vacuum. But chapter 3 verse 12, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in the one body and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all spiritual, in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to God. There are the rags that you've taken off. They're over there on the floor. They're disgusting. And here are the beautiful clothes. White clothes. Why white? Because of purity. White clothes is what new baptised hands would wear. This is a day in the life of Jesus, isn't it? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Uh, these are not the things of weakness. It takes enormous strength and substance of character to live life like this, doesn't it? Compassionate, deeply sensitive to the needs of others rather than just fatigued. 
time with a simple interest more in the effect of life on others than on yourself. A fundamental disposition towards others that's open-hearted and warm rather than cold-hearted and disinterested. I was at a party recently uh, where there were about 50 people, family and relatives, extended family and two neighbours. You know what these parties are like? Have you ever been to one of these parties? 50 friends all buzzing around having a terrific time. Family members who haven't seen each other. I've got 25 years of history with each other. Really just enjoying catching up because I live in different parts of the party. And Nigel. <laughs> Nigel, no friend. Just this couple sitting by themselves. And you know how long it takes to realise how alone you are and how awkward the next four hours are going to be? It takes about 15 seconds, I think. And so my wife, who hadn't seen lots of these people for a long time, some friends of 20-something years, who hadn't seen for a long time, leaves this group and she sits down over here and engages in that awkward and difficult conversation that's not nearly as easy as with her relatives. Not nearly as easy. But just tries to find common points of ground, uh, you know, points of common ground and contact because that's what kindness is. And eventually some more people come over and these people go away saying, wow, Christians, they're okay actually. Instead of saying, wow, Christians, do they get on well with each other? Really enjoy each other's company. Just like everyone else I know. Uh, humility is an attitude towards oneself that says, I'm not at the centre. I'm not at the centre. I'm not the most important person in the world and I don't care how many times A&P or whoever it is tells me that I am, I'm not. Meekness. Meekness is a recognition that when we bump into people we often do more damage than we realise. Uh, bumping into people in this world is inevitable. That's just kind of how life happens. We bump. It's a bumpy kind of world. Meekness recognises that when we bump into others we often do them more harm, we often hurt them more than we know. And so a meek person takes a special care to minimise the impact of their bumps. Not to bruise others in their interactions. But patience, which is a kind of humble kindness in the way that we respond to people, recognising that more time almost always makes a situation better. Now, the Apostle says, these great virtues, these great dispositions of the heart, these character traits which recognise that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus has taken care of business for me, that my life is secure in Him and therefore I don't have to desperately go around and make life work for myself, I can trust Him and work at making life work for others. These virtues will take concrete form, you see, as forbearance and forgiveness. Forbearance is having a soul large enough to let go of little things and in particular let people be themselves even when they're odd or difficult. You know, I find it constantly amazing that people are different from me. I have no understanding why they should be so, why they don't change and become more wise or sensible or something like me. There are strange people out there that are odd like all of you. 
Um, forbearance is letting people be odd. Letting people be different and not demanding that they be like you. That they have all your priorities, all your views, all your preferences. That's forbearance. Forgiveness is having a soul large enough to let go of the big things. Not just when people are odd, but when people are bad. When they sinned against you, to forgive them. To forgive them. Jesus takes this very seriously, doesn't he? It's one of his points of fiercest warning. The servant who is forgiven a multi-trillion dollar debt, but who won't forgive a fellow servant a couple of hundred bucks. And Jesus is utterly, utterly condemning of unforgiveness in his people. The thing that binds these virtues together, the thing perhaps that binds the Christian community together, above all, is love. And when love has its full effect in the community, it will result in peace, peaceableness amongst us, not fractiousness. Of course, it's the Word of God which informs and shapes and models and reveals this life lived in Jesus' name. And so it will be vital that we be soaked in God's Word, that it dwell amongst us richly in our words and in our songs. This is the Apostle's vision of living life in Jesus' name, to be covered by the dust of our Rabbi, the Lord Jesus, to put to death what's alien to Him, to bring to life what's proper to Him. And it's hard work. Don't misunderstand that. This is a lifetime project. Uh, I hope that you become a person if God gives you 60 or 70 or 80, I, I buried this morning in a funeral a 94 year old woman. 94! Let's hope you live that long. And that your life gradually becomes increasingly graceful. That you just drip more and more of these virtues as you get older and older. Instead of what happens so often, which is that we just become less and less inhibited more and more <laughs> grumpy. What is it that's going to motivate you to keep going down this life path of putting to death and bringing to life? Putting to death vices and bring to life virtues. Well, I've heard often enough uh, the saying, you don't have to do anything to be a Christian. You heard that? You don't have to do anything to be a Christian. That's sort of right, of course, in that we don't have to be somehow good enough for God, make ourselves good enough for Him. Not only is that a hopeless task, it's an insult to Christ because it's on Christ, on the cross that Christ makes us good enough for God, reconciles us to God. It's sort of right, but it's more wrong than it's right. Notice the assumption underneath the saying is that doing and being are only accidentally connected to each other and so it's possible to be without having to do. And the Apostle says, no, being and doing are in massively close connection with each other. Look at it, chapter 3, verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul says, if you've been raised in Christ, the if here is not an if of doubt, as in it's uncertain, it's the if of logic. 
if this, then this. In other words, since, since you've been raised with Christ, then put your mind on where you are, which is in Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father. You see, Christ, Paul says, is your life. You die. That old you, it's dead, it's buried, says Paul. So live your life in Jesus' name because you do exist in Jesus' name. Your life is not yours anymore, it's his. It's in him that we've been raised. And since that is where our life is, then that is how we should live. Being and doing go together. But notice, there's also from the Apostle the recognition that the job is not yet finished. Christ is our life. Yes, that is true, but it's also true that Christ is at the right hand of the Father and in that sense he is hidden. His Lordship is a hidden Lordship. It will be revealed when he returns and then you will be revealed as well. The you that God has made you to be, you'll be revealed in glory with him. At that time, the correspondence between what we do and who we are will be perfect. But until then it's not. It's not perfect, but neither is it to be absent. Brother or sister in Christ, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then you have died and you have been raised. Put to death whatever in you is earthly and live that new life, that life of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your gift of life. And we ask that you would give us, by your Holy Spirit, the strength to live that life that you have granted us. Life in your name and for your glory. Amen.